Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, guys, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Dave Hill. He's like, well, people drive along that highway and shoot people in front of the prison. And I was like, Bob, I was just in front of the prison for, like, 20 minutes. Like, what? That and more. But first, I'm here with Chris Castiglione, who made the Risk website and recently also started a site called OneMonthHTML.com. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? Um, let us know, what is One Month HTML? Yeah, I mean, it's a class that I'm just really excited about. You know, after working with you on Risk, me and Matan, we came and started One Month HTML. It's a way that you can learn to code in 30 minutes a day, for 30 days. It's basically just what I wish I had when I started learning. Yeah. I, how did you teach yourself how to code? I just, you know, took about a year uh, to just a little bit every day. As soon as I learned to code, you know, I, I wanted to play music for a living, but it was just so exciting that like I was helping all these people in a creative way, make websites for my dad's business and for friends. And so I just went with it and it became my life. I love it. So that whole year that I learned, I was just like, hey, what if I could teach other people? And I broke it down into like the most important bits. And that's why it's 30 minutes a day for 30 days. I'm available for support via email, or if you guys get stuck, we'll even get you on the phone, whatever we have to do to just help you succeed. Like that's the thing that I'm really excited about the most. And so risk listeners get a discount here. Yeah. So if you're interested, go to onemonth.com forward slash risk. We'll give a discount for Risk fans because we love you and all your fans and the show. And that's a great place to get started. That's awesome. So it's one month HTML, 30 minutes a day. For 30 days, you'll be able to code HTML and CSS. Just go to onemonth.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Poddington Bear. Behind me now, calling this week's episode Death Defying. And you know the stakes are high when we're using that kind of language up in here. In just a bit, we are going to hear from Risk fan Chelsea Hostetter, who contacted us with a story she wanted to share. But before that, a favorite of ours, Dave Hill. Dave has a show now on WFMU on Tuesday nights. It's called uh, The Goddamn Dave Hill Show, and I'm often on it. So here he is now from a recent Risk Live show in New York City. This is Dave Hill with a story we call 
Holiday in the Sun. I guess, like a lot of performers and a lot of people in general, I have a lot of anxiety and neuroses and things like that. And um, over the last couple of years, I've figured out if I do things to like scare the shit out of myself, it's like really ends up being really. Help. I, mean, I don't mean like like jumping out of an airplane or any of that bullshit, but like. <laughs> like really scary stuff like I've started doing shows in prisons like I did a show, a show do you know Sing Sing Prison it's a very prisony prison uh, and I so uh, I mean I started doing comedy shows in there because uh, I mean you could see I've been out here for a couple minutes you could see how but that might be not the best idea uh, so but I you know in, in the anticipation I would just be freaking out and I'd do it and I'd feel better afterwards so about a year ago, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine about a friend of mine, Bob Coogan, who I knew from, I went to Fordham in the Bronx, and he, he was on the staff there working in campus ministry, which is sort of, you know, they just kind of help out the students with whatever, and he was uh, always really great to me, and we became friends, and um, I lost track of him since I got out of college, and it turned out he had become a priest, Later in life, in his 40s, he became a priest, a Catholic priest. And, and you know, in America, Catholic priests, it's like, oh, you go work at a university or like a suburban church or whatever. But he was in Mexico, but not like the fun in the sun, Margarita, Mexico, like northern Mexico, like murdery, rapey, cut your head off with a machete, Mexico, which is most of Mexico, to be fair. So... Um, and in, so this article is talking about this, and he got a job as the chaplain at a prison in Mexico. And this particular prison, the cartel guys, which is the gang, the bad, ne- very negative group of people uh, <laughs> at the prison, they murdered the warden at the prison a couple of years ago. And the Mexican government, always on top of things, were, they were just like, whoa, sounds like you guys got this one covered. Uh, you guys run the prison. We'll just be on the outside. Uh, and if you need us, let us know. And uh, so this is the prison. And he's like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. But the bishop was like, no, Bob, you should stay. And he's like, oh, thanks. Uh, so anyway, so my... And this story in the Times Magazine is all about my friend Bob and how he works in this crazy, crazy Mexican prison as the chaplain. And it's like people disappear in this prison. There's like extortion. It's very, as prisons go, it's not a nice prison. Anyway, you slice it. So I hadn't talked to Bob in years, so I get a hold of him. He's on, on Facebook, even, even priests in Mexican prisons on Facebook. Uh, so... I jump in the line and we get to chatting and I'm like, Bob, like I kind of like to come down there and hang out in the Mexican prison with you, catch up or whatever. And, um, you know, what do you think? And he's like, well, you know, the climate's uh, improved lately. It would just say like it's become slightly less murdery. And he's like, I think you'll be okay. Uh, I don't want to say you'll definitely be fine, but you'll probably be fine. And... Um, so come on down, we'll have some fun. And so I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to go down. And I start telling my friends about it, and a lot of my friends read this article, and they're like, you're fucking crazy, don't go down there. And like, I looked on the U.S. State Department, you know, you can like see like, should I go to Paris? Yes, or whatever. <laughs> but uh, this, in northern Mexico, Saltillo, this town he's in, they're like, Basically, the subtext was like, fuck no, do not go there, bad, don't go somewhere else for vacation. And uh, so everyone's like, no, no, and I talked to my brother, and my brother's like, I don't know, I think you should go, you have the time of your life, and if anything happens, you won't care, because you'll be dead. So I was like, that seems reasonable. So... 
so I bought a plane ticket and uh, and so I fly down there and you know we, were, we had been writing on the way up and a few weeks before I went down there Bob was like oh just so you know a bunch of prisoners got released and uh, so I have a few of them staying at the house because in, in Mexico in America like you kind of have a heads up like I'm getting out of prison in, in a year two months whatever the thing is but in Mexico they kind of tap you on the shoulder and like get out there and start living so <laughs> That's what happened, you know. They let like 30 guys loose, so they don't loose. But uh, anyway, they so he has some of them staying in his house because they had nowhere to go. And then by the time I'm headed down there, I live over in Houston. Then another thing, they were like, "Don't take a taxi from the airport because like they'll kidnap you and hold you for ransom and kill you or whatever." Even like legitimate cabs. It's not like here in New York. Don't take a fake cab. Like even the real cab drivers will do this in Mexico, northern Mexico, apparently. Very negative. Uh, and so I was calling Bob to make sure he's picking me up at the airport. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'll be there. And you know, just have one guy at the house so it's not going to be too crowded. It's just me and uh, be you. And then this other guy, Joel, who's a murderer and a rapist. Uh, <laughs> See you in a couple hours. And uh, so I'm like, what, what was that? And, um, and I get to the airport, Saltillo Airport's this tiny little, it's like a bus station practically. And Bob's waiting for me, I hadn't seen him in years. And he's got the murderer rapist with him who seemed delightful, all things considered. Uh, and we go to dinner, and I don't speak any Spanish. Like, I can order a beer or something, which is, like, entertaining at first or whatever, and then, like, the more you do it through, like, this guy's got a problem. And, uh, <laughs> but, so, basically, I can't, I can't, you know, have a conversation. And the murder-rapist guy, he can't speak English, so we're mostly just smiling and nodding and things. And Bob goes to the bathroom and just murder-rapist and I like, hey, how's it going? And, and then Bob comes back and the murder-rapist goes uh, to the bathroom and I'm like, Bob, uh, the, he seems great, but um, how does the murder-rapist get out of prison like at all? And he's like, oh, I'm just kidding, he's a thief. But he's really a thief, so if anything's missing, uh, you know, the house, tell me, because he definitely took it, you know, let me know. So I'm like, all right, thanks for that, so. And, um, and so, you know, we go home, we go to sleep. And, uh, you know, I wake up, and the next day I'm, like, shoving my stuff, like, hiding my stuff all over his house. So then Bob and I go out and we kind of run his errands for the day. He's like checking on like recently released inmates. But the big fun errand of the day is he had to get pizzas because it was a guy's birthday in prison. And they were going to have a pizza party for him. And you know, you never Mexican prison pizza party. Four words you don't expect together. But um, you know, as best I can tell, I'm like, I don't know what I've heard. It still sounds as good times all the time in a Mexican prison. So we go to the prison. And uh, we get there, and Bob's like, um, you know, I don't know if I have permission for you to come in tomorrow, but you can't come in today, so no pizza party for you. And so he's like, you got to wait out front while I go inside with the pizzas. I'm like, all right. And, and it's just like a wasteland out front, and there's like wild dogs running around, and there's guards, and like the guards don't even have uniforms. You just know like, you know, that's Jose, he's a guard. Like, that's Juan, he's an arsonist, or whatever. Or whatever the thing is. And uh, so I'm just waiting, and there's this highway about like 30, 40, 50 yards in front of me. Just cars whizzing past, and like state police come by, like, you know, with guys in the back with like machine guns. It's like a war zone, and I'm waiting. And the whole time I'm sitting there, and there's these guards circling, passing me, and, and they have bulletproof vests on, and I'm like, that's kind of weird. What? And uh, Bob finally comes out, and he's like, let's go. And so we're walking back to his car, and I'm like, Bob, why, uh, why do the guards on the outside of the prison have bulletproof vests on? And he's like, you see that highway over there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, people drive along that highway and shoot people in front of the prison. And I was like, Bob, I was just in front of the prison. <laughs> for like 20 minutes, like what, why'd you do that to me? And uh, he's like, well, that, you know, it's kind of how it is down here, like everything's fine until it is, and that's what I was trying to tell you. And, uh, and he's, like, he's like, you can't, you know, worry about that sort of thing. I'm, I'm kind of worried about it. And, uh, 
And then I was like, Bob, aren't you afraid you're going to get murdered down here? Because, like, pr Catholic priests have been murdered, like, a million times down there. And he's like, well, Dave, do you worry when you wake up in the morning that it's going to rain later? And I'm like, not really. He's like, well, that's kind of how I am about murder. <laughs> and, uh, so, <laughs> all right, let's get lunch. Uh, <laughs> You know, I don't know, I've been raised to listen, whatever, listen to what the priest says. So I'm like, okay. Uh, but yeah, he was just kind of like, you can't, yeah, you can't sit and worry about being murdered down here. You know, otherwise it's all you think about. So anyway, we go have, you know, we have dinner again at a Mexican restaurant. Or I mean, This is where I was always confused. Like, is it a Mexican restaurant still if it's in Mexico? Or is it just a Anyway, not important to the story. <laughs> but... I know, I've said so many negative things about this place, but the Mexican food in Mexico, the food there was delightful. It was great. Anyway, so we have another great dinner. Next day we wake up, and it's this is the big day. We're going to prison. And uh, we're driving, and Bob's, you know, he's kind of irritated with me that I don't speak any Spanish. He's like, how do you not know, like, any, you can't say anything to, like, you know, make your way around a Mexican prison. I'm like, sorry. Uh, and uh, so he's, he's like, you have to, but I play guitar and I'm fucking sweet at it. And uh, but, so, and Bob knows this, so he's like, you have to, whenever I ask you to play guitar, you have to play guitar for these guys, okay? And I'm like, all right. And like in Mexican, there's, Mexican prisons are lousy with guitars, they're everywhere. And uh, so he's like, just anytime I ask you to play a guitar, just grab it and play it. So we're going to prison. And on the way, like, this is sort of a nice surprise. He's like, I have to stop at the women's prison first. And, and we go in the women's prison. It was totally different from any movie I had seen, a uh, women's prison movie. And, but it was still, like, very interesting. And uh, a very nice prison. And uh, we go, and he says, mass. And, he, and then at one point, he's like, Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. Mi amigo, David, take it away. And I play guitar. And then, you know, we leave. And he's like, oh, that went great. And um, we go to the men's prison, and it's way bigger and way crazier. And we go in, it's just like a free-for-all. We get in there, and I'm kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen. And like, everyone's like asking me for money and like grabbing me and stuff. And uh, we go into the chapel, like this open-air chapel. And there's like a bunch of guys with guitars like who are gonna play during mass, and I just grab a spare guitar, even without Bob asking. I just like start playing my ass off, and uh, I play through the whole mass with these guys. And then at the end of the mass, Bob goes to hear confessions, and without even telling me, he just leaves me with all these guys. So I just start just shredding as hard as I can, just playing as fast as I can, while these guys are like backing me up, and like inmates are coming in from the yard, and it's like I'm like I don't know. It, I'm just like fucking ruling this Mexican prison. It's going like really well. And uh, at one point, a guy's like, the only English anyone said, the guy goes, Hotel California, and I'm coming up. Like, I knew how to play that. And I was like, this is going great. And, um, and I'm feeling pretty good about it. And, and this guy comes up to me, one of the few guys that speaks English, and he's talking to me. And I was like, oh, your English is pretty good. And uh, he's like, yeah. And he's like, can I have your address? Like, I can write you letters. It'll help me practice my, my English. And so, I was, uh, you know, I was in a pretty good mood at this point. So I'm like, here you go. And we're, I'm walking out with Bob. I'm like, Bob, who was that guy I gave my address to? And he's like, that guy actually was a murderer, rapist. <laughs> but don't worry, he's not getting out. <laughs> so he, like, he'll probably just write and ask you for money. So we go home. And Howell, the thief guy, um, just for, so you remember what I'm talking about, he's waiting out front. And this other guy, Gustavo, who's just a friend uh, who's in town for the night, he's going to crash. Now, they're locked out of the house. And the reason is because, I guess the day before I got there, there had been this guy, Chilongo, staying there. And Chilongo was another recent release inmate, and he had, like... He would bring home like prostitutes to the house and have beer parties, and like he brought a puppy home, even though Bob already had a dog. And like so far, like I'm like I kind of admire this guy, Joie de Vivre. And, uh, but I guess Bob was like annoyed by that stuff. But then Chilongo stole 400 bucks from my friend Bob, and Bob's like, "That's it, you're out of here." So so he and then he had to change the locks. So 
you know, he didn't come, try to come back and whatever. So he's the only one with keys. So they're waiting out for him. We all go inside and Gustavo speaks English. So, you know, we start drinking beer. We're having like a really nice bilingual time. And um, then Joel, his phone rings and he goes in the other room and takes his call. He comes back and he's clearly really upset and they're talking like yelling in Spanish and I was like, what's going, what's up with this guy? And they're like, oh, Chilango called and apparently with the $400 he stole from me, this is Bob talking, he's like, he bought beer for the two of them and now he says that, you know, Joel owes them 25 bucks basically for the beer. And, uh, and that's a lot of money down there. That's, they, they, you know, the kid makes like 60 bucks a week. So 25 bucks, a lot of money. And um, he says, if you don't pay me, I'm gonna come to the house and murder Bob and Gustavo and mess up the apartment, which, you know, I'll go for it after you've already killed everybody. But he's somehow he threw that and I was like, I'm gonna trash the place and steal Bob's car, which seems like, you know, a bit much. Uh, and he's like, if, if, you know, if you don't pay me the money, and so I was like, well, he's gonna pay him, right? And Bob's like, no, if you, if you pay him the money, that's gonna, just gonna show him that this technique is effective. And I was like, I think it sounds pretty effective. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're like, no, 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 don't, we can't pay him. And then Gustavo's like, I'm not, I'm not afraid. Like, we're not, you wanna know why I'm not afraid? I'm like, yeah, why aren't you afraid? And he leans in, he's like, cause I'm not afraid to die. And I was like, please, I, I'm on vacation. I got this, let me pay this money. I'll give him like 40 bucks, I don't care. And, and they're like, no, we're not paying him. And I was like, well, fine, this vacation's ruined. And, uh, and they're like, Dave, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I was, so I'm like, Bob, do you, what do you, do you think this is an idle threat? And he's like, yeah, I, I do think it's an idle threat. But then again, you only have one chance to be wrong about this sort of thing. So I'm like, all right, listen to the priest, listen to the priest. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess if you're right, if he doesn't have 25 bucks, like, where is he going to get a gun to come over here and shoot everybody? And Bob's like, it's Mexico. He'll use a machete. Come on. It's more dramatic. And I was like, okay, well, and also, like, he seems like the kind of guy where if he came over here planning to kill you and Gustavo, if he sees me, the guy on vacation, he's not going to be like, oh, sorry, I'm just going to kill these guys. And they're like, oh, no, he would definitely kill you. You. And then I'm remembering that Bob had given me his room to stay in, you know, the nice host. And so I'm like, well, Bob, he's going to kill me too. He's going he's gonna to come looking for you first, and I'm in your room. So when the machete-wielding maniac shows up, he's going to go in your room first. So they're like, oh, yeah, he'd definitely kill you first. <laughs> but don't worry about it. And then Bob's like, I'm, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. So I'm just sitting there, and then Gustavo was like, me and Noel are going to go to the store. It's midnight at this point. They're like, do you want to go to the store with us? I'm like, no. And, but I'm the only white guy I've seen down there besides Bob. And then I'm like, that's not a good idea. They're like, all right, we'll just leave you here by yourself. I'm like, let me get my coat. And uh, so I go with them because I, you know, I figured I don't want to stay back there by myself. And I, I'm like, we go to the store, you know, they get cigarettes and stuff. And I'm like, worried that someone's going to kill me with a machete. And I don't get killed. And then we get to the house and it's, you know, we go to bed and it's like really hot. And, and I shut the window to my room because I figured like, and it's, it, it made it even worse, like very uncomfortable hot in there. But I figured like if the guy comes and he crashes the window with a machete, like I'll hear that and they'll give me a head start and I'll get out of there and not get killed with a machete. And I went to sleep and I mean, it was as much as one can when you fear a machete wielding maniac is gonna kill you in your sleep, you know, a little bit. And I woke up the next day we go about our day and running more prison errands and things like that. And then Bob and I are having dinner again and he gets a call from this guy, Chilongo. And Chilongo's like, uh, you know, what did you, you call the cops on me? And like, you know, it's all this stuff. Like, I'm like, God damn, this fucking machete-wielding maniac. <laughs> and, but the one nice thing about it is like, you know, normally I'm like, think of all this bullshit. Like, oh, like, why didn't, 
that people retweet that last tweet. It was pretty good. Wow, people liked that new Facebook photo or whatever. But like when you think someone's trying to kill you with a machete, you don't think about any of that stuff. You don't care <laughs> at all about that stuff. So it's kind of nice in that way that I felt like really more like in the moment, more present in what was going on in my life. I'm like, I don't care about social media right now that much. Um, so finally we get back to Bob's house, Howell's out front, we go back inside again, they're talking, and I'm like, what's he saying, what happened? Apparently Chilongo showed up at his work with this other guy named Larez, which means the beef, like this thug or whatever, they're like, give, me, give us the money or we're gonna kill everyone tonight. And I'm like, what did he say? And, uh, <laughs> and they're like, well, he, he borrowed the money from his boss and he paid him, and then, I was like, well, why did he pay him? You said he shouldn't pay him. And they're talking, and he's like, oh, he said that we weren't in prison with Chalango, but he was, so he really knows what he's like, and he definitely would have murdered all of you guys tonight. So I was like, oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> and I bought beers for everyone, just cool shit kind of thing I do. Um, but it was, you know, I felt better for that one day. Now it's been a year later, and I had this really great tweet today, and it didn't really get that many <laughs> favorites. I guess I just miss Mexican prison. Thank you. I've always desired approval from other people. When I was in school, I was a straight-A student. I had perfect handwriting. There was no shortage of compliments from other people. And I would always hear, wow, Chelsea, you know, you're gonna do great things someday. And there's not one person who wouldn't wanna hire you. And I became very reliant on other people's approval. I started crafting a persona that made myself as pleasing as possible. During this time, I got involved with two amazing women by the name of Anne and Lori. Lori was a sensitive, talented person. She's amazingly good at fashion. I'm pretty sure she taught me how to dress myself. Anne was the passionate, assertive head of our group. She was a leader in most everything. She taught me how to draw. She taught me how to think about things critically. And that's something I use even today in my design job. I met Anne and Lori when I was 13 years old in middle school. Anne and Lori and I all shared the same thing in common, which was that we liked Japanese animation. The more we talked about it, the closer we got, and the more we started realizing that we had a lot more in common. We were all artists, we were all very sensitive, we all really liked to go on adventures together. My role in the group was the smart, cheerful intellectual. So when Anne and Lori would go off on an adventure, I would be the person that would say, I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, it might not actually be so smart to go against our parents' wishes. And I was definitely the good one out of the group. And I was always the one that if they wanted me to come out with them on like senior skip day in high school, I would be the one that would be clinging to her desk and going, no, I have to finish work. Towards the end of high school, we started dating and the idea and subject and topic of boys was very weird for us. I was not of the dating type at the time and my kind of overall thought was, I just want to draw anime and you know, I don't really care. <laughs> and so on that front, we started growing apart. And then when Anne and Lori got accepted to colleges in Texas, and then I got accepted to a college in Pittsburgh, to Carnegie Mellon. I realized that our friendship was going to be 
even more long distance than it originally started out being. Throughout my time at Carnegie Mellon, people kept saying the same things. I was a great artist. I spoke Japanese really well. That was my major at CMU. And everyone told me that I would achieve great things. And then the market crashed in 2008. And I graduated in 2009 into a really terrible economy. When I was graduating, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, talked to us. And essentially, his speech was, congratulations, class of 2009, you're screwed. That was probably the most depressing graduation speech I've ever heard from anyone. <laughs> so I couldn't find a job anywhere. I was so poor that I moved in with my parents. About a month after I had graduated, my parents announced to me over the kitchen table that they were going to be getting a divorce after 26 years of marriage. But they thought that it would be a good idea for the two of them to stay in the same house while the divorce proceedings were going on. Everything I thought was real and right got turned on its head. Because of all of this, I slipped into a depression. It's not that I felt intensely sad, it's that I didn't feel anything. My boyfriend, who I had met at CMU in my senior year, we were living apart from each other about nine months out of the year. He would call me up on the phone, and I just couldn't feel anything. He would tell me that he loved me, and I would tell him that I loved him too, but I knew that there was really nothing behind those words. I just wanted to stay in bed all day. I would wake up in the morning and I would feel nothing and I would try to take a shower if at all possible and I would feel nothing and I would go back to sleep and I would feel nothing and that was day after day after day. So I started to fantasize about what it might be like to die. Fantasizing about suicide fulfilled two things for me and one was that it was an escape. I felt like I could get out. I feel like I could feel something. The second thing that I wanted to do with it was make a scene. And this is something that's hard for me to admit because not a lot of people would say that they would want people to watch them die. But at the time, I had parents who were very busy with divorce papers. I had a boyfriend who was busy with his senior year of college. I had friends I had connected with in middle school and high school years, but they were busy finding jobs of their own, and everyone just seemed too busy to notice what was going on with me as I slowly deteriorated. When I fantasized about walking in front of a car, and I would feel an intense pain. It would be glorious because at least I would be able to feel something. If anything, I would hear people screaming and people would notice and I would be able to just slip into nothingness right after that. I wouldn't have to deal with anything after that. In the midst of my suicidal thoughts, I witnessed something that would change the way that I thought about suicide forever. It was three days before my birthday. I was sitting on the couch, petting my cat. Uh, I was sitting with my 
boyfriend, Matt. As I'm recalling it, I remember that I didn't even hear the gunshot happen. All I heard was someone wailing outside, and my cat dug her claws into my thighs as if there was something wrong. And I just felt compelled to run outside and see what was going on. And as the wails became more clear to me, I could hear someone going, Oh my God, my baby, my baby. And what I saw was my neighbor's wife. She was covered in blood, holding a shotgun on her shoulder. And she was holding the corpse of her husband in the front yard. Everything was covered in blood. It wasn't the way that I had fantasized about what blood looked like, it wasn't dark, movie, fake blood. It was bright, real, and terrifying blood right in the middle of the daytime. She continued wailing, and sirens started screaming, and people started gathering around the scene. My neighbors turned away from the body and started conversing with one another, like small talk. I was the only person who was turned towards the body of my neighbor and I focused in on his ear. The shotgun had done some really awful things to what was now him lying on the ground, but his ear was intact. And so as I was staring at it, I realized that while everyone else was pretending like this was just some awful scene, this was a real human being that had shot himself. And I focused in on that feeling because to me, it was the only thing that was preventing me from going back into that dead space of nothingness. I started to think back on a conversation that he and I had about sports about two days ago. I don't actually like sports. I don't actually know if he did either, but we were talking about the subject with such passion that both of us really seemed to convince ourselves that we were actually sport fans. I couldn't tell that he was lying, and I don't think anyone else could tell that I was lying either. I lied to my boyfriend about the way I was feeling. I lied to my parents about the fact that I was depressed and I'd been lying to my friends, telling people that it was okay and I was just feeling a little sad and not really impressing upon them the weight of my situation. After I had thought about our conversation, I turned my face back to my boyfriend and his face was white as a sheet. He had an expression on his face that I could only describe as blank horror. As he looked at me and looked at my neighbor. And that was the moment that I realized my suicide could have more of an effect than just on myself. It could have an effect on every single person that I knew. And I thought as I looked at his face that this is the face that he would make if I died. When I thought about that, I immediately felt a gush of just sickness, total nausea at what I was considering doing. And that was the first emotion I ever had in maybe three, four months. And I felt overjoyed. I felt overjoyed to be so sick with myself. It felt like I was alive again. I realized that no one else is going to dig me out of this hole. And so I have to do this myself. I started going to therapy groups 
I started telling the truth to people. If people asked me how I was doing, I would tell them, you know, I'm depressed. It's hard. I can't get out of bed. I don't know what to do. I don't feel anything. I need help. And celebrating the small victories like getting out of bed and showering or feeling love for my boyfriend. And I realized that my neighbor, even though he doesn't know that he helped me, I think that if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be alive today. While I started doing all of this therapy, I started realizing that the more people I told that I was depressed, the better I felt and the more support I got. And so I realized that I had to tell my friends from middle school and high school and Lori about the fact that I was depressed and the fact that I was struggling. I called up Anne and so I told her, you know, I'm depressed. I think I'm getting better. But at one point, I thought that I was going to commit suicide. And her response was, that's nice, Chelsea. And it was just totally baffling because it was completely different than what responses I had received from my parents, from Matt, from the people at therapy. It didn't make any sense to me. And so... I tried again to tell her, look, this is something that's happening to me and this is a part of my life right now. She replied to me, you know, Chelsea, I really wish that you wouldn't be so selfish. I wish that you'd really consider other people when you're talking to them and I'd really like it if we didn't talk about this again. After I got off the phone with her, I thought, you know, I felt like I could solve problems by being selfless, by shielding people from the fact that I was in such a deep hole. But I think this problem I had to solve by being selfish. I called up Anne again and said, look, I don't think we can be friends anymore. At least not right now, because if you can't see me as I am right now, I can't do this. I hung up the phone on her as she started to go on a tirade about how selfish and ignorant I was. I have to say that I think the reason why that happened was because I was the smart, intellectual, cheerful one in the group. And I was perfect. I couldn't do anything wrong. And so the fact that I didn't fit into that anymore the fact that I was thinking about jumping in front of a car, the fact that I'm a human being, it doesn't work with a created persona. It's probably about a year, year give or take, after Anne and I broke off our friendship, Lori said to me that if I wasn't friends with Anne, I couldn't be friends with her anymore either. So that's how I lost my two best friends at the time. I think I realized the value of friends who could see the ugly side of me and not look away. And now I have so many close and amazing friends. My boyfriend and I are about to be engaged. And every time I tell this story to my friends or family, I feel so close to them because they know a part about me that is dark, a part about me that's hidden, and it's a part about me that flies in the face of being a perfect, cheerful girl. Getting relationships that support you in, in a time that you don't have any hope left is to me the greatest gift that you could give yourself, and supporting others in their dark times is the greatest gift that you could give to someone else.
This is Risk. This is Katie Herzig behind me now, and we just heard from Risk fan Chelsea Hostetter. Remember, you can pitch us your stories, too. That's always at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Now listen, computers are designed to make running a business easier, including your mailing and shipping. So why not use stamps.com to get 24-hour access to the post office from your computer? No waiting in line, no hassles. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. You just use the computer and printer you already have to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. You print the postage directly onto envelopes, labels, then hand it to your mail carrier. No guesswork. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any class of mail. You never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code R-I-S-K for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now, there's one last story we have on the show today, and it comes to us from the live show that we did in Dallas, Texas, just a little bit ago. Very talented young man and a terrific guy. This is Tyler Phillips with a story we call 1210 Zuber Street. I have a recurring nightmare about delivering pizzas. It's late at night, it's really hot outside, and I have this, I have this really bad feeling in my gut that something terrible is about to happen. And before I started having this dream, I actually did deliver pizzas. It's the summer of 2011, and I was about to graduate from Auburn University, and I took this job delivering pizzas in Opelika, Alabama, which is the town over, and I, I had this nervous feeling about delivering pizzas. And I'm, I'm kind of a nervous person anyway, um, but I had this, this bad feeling because, you know, sometimes you have to go to areas that are not that great, and you have to deal with kind of sketchy people. I delivered to a guy one time who didn't bother to take his crack pipe off the table where he had his pizza money. <laughs> but I, I'm always kind of nervous, and I've been that way since I was a little kid, and, and I don't want to let fear cripple me. So I try to push myself, so I take this job, and I was only about a month away from graduating from college, and I, I'd recently broken up with my childhood sweetheart, Charity. Um, we'd broken up, and so I was in this like weird transitional period. And on July 11th, 2011, I did not want to go to work. I had this really bad feeling that something bad was going to happen when I went to work. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I'm thinking, just go. You're, you're just being a baby. You get these bad feelings all the time, and nothing ever happens. Just go. Just go to work. And I get to work, and my fears are quickly validated. We're super busy, and on one of my early deliveries, I rear-end a lady. I hit her car, and luckily, there was no damage done or anything like that. And so she didn't want to file a police report. So I get in the car, and my heart rate's going down. I think, I'm okay. I had this bad thing happen. Nothing bad came of it. Dinner rush is going to be over within an hour. I just got to make it through the day. You're on easy street now. About 8 o'clock that night, I get a uh, phone call. And it's very weird. But you meet a lot of weird people delivering pizzas. Um, like this guy, Mr. James. When I delivered to Mr. James, he's probably 70, 75 years old. And when he answers the door, he looks like he's cosplaying as Tom Cruise in Risky Business. <laughs> he's wearing tube socks, and he's got on a dress shirt that's way too big for him, and he's not wearing pants. I hope he's wearing underwear. I can't tell. His shirt's too long. And he shuffles to the door, and he answers the door. Anchovies. Excuse me? 
do you know what anchovies are? Well, yes, sir, but we don't get many requests for anchovies, so we actually don't have those as a, as a topping for a pizza. I weep for you. <laughs> so he gives me the money and he takes the pizza. So I get this call about 8 o'clock at night, and it's very weird. The guy says, hello, yes, my name is William Edward Johnson. I live at 1210 Zuber Street. It's a red house with a porch, and I'd like two pizzas. I'd like pepperoni and... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up just a second. You're going a little fast, and I'm like, why is this guy telling me about where he lives, and he's telling me his name? This is so odd. And I was like, Zuber Street? Is that even, is that even a real street? I don't, I've never heard of this place. I was like, how do you, how do you spell that? Z-U-B-E-R. It's like, okay, and... I look on the map, and, and sure enough, it's a real place. And so I take his order, and it's, it's kind of a large order. And I get off the phone with him, and I, I try to put the order through, and it won't go. And I look, and there's no phone number. And I think, Jesus Christ, did, did I delete the number? Like, the number goes into the computer automatically. And so I look at the caller ID on the phone next to me, and it's a blocked number. I think this is very odd. So I asked my manager, like, what do, we, what do we do in this situation? I can't put the order through. I can't call him back. He says, well, you know, he'll get upset that he hasn't received his food. He will call back and complain. We'll give him something for free. And you'll take the delivery. I'm like, okay. So I go out and I do a few more deliveries. And, and the whole time I'm doing it, I just, I just have this sick feeling. And it's way worse than before I went to work that day. There's, there's something that doesn't feel right about that order. And I think... Please, please, Super Street, do not call back. Please. And I'm not even listening to music. I'm just driving around, and I'm, I'm thinking, please don't call back. And I get back to the store, and, and sure enough, there's the 1210 Zuber Street order waiting on me. So I go there, and Zuber Street is really short. It's only about 500 yards long, and there are only two houses on the street. And there's a blue house on the left, and there's a red house on the right with a porch, just like the guy said. And then the road splits out into two separate roads right there where the two houses are. And I, I pull up, and there are two black kids sitting on the stoop. And I get out of the car, and it, it's hot. It's one of those Alabama nights. It's sticky. And it's hard to breathe. And I see the two kids, and they stand up. How are y'all doing tonight? And they don't say anything. They just start walking towards me. But much like meeting weird people, you meet a lot of rude people, too, delivering pizzas. So I walk around to the passenger side of the car, and I open up the door, and I, I reach inside to pull out their two two-liter drinks. And I turn around, and I go to hand it to the kid closest to me. And he's a tall black kid, and he's got kind of a mean mug on his face. And I go to hand him the drinks, and instead of taking the drinks from me, he reaches into the back waistband of his cargo shorts, and he pulls out a 9 millimeter pistol. And he sticks it in my face. And I don't know if you can tell by my voice, I grew up around guns. Surprise, surprise. And <laughs> I can tell that this is a real gun. And not only can I tell that it's a real gun, the gun has a, a weight to it. And the way he's holding it, and I can feel the weight of it. And I think this gun is not only real, it is loaded. And I think, you are going to die. Because... Is the safety on that thing? If the safety's not on that thing, it probably has a hair trigger and his finger may slip. And if his finger slips, it doesn't matter what kind of ammunition he has in it. From this range, you are going to die. And he says, give me everything. And I think, just stay calm. Just give him whatever he wants. He just wants the pizza and the money. And so I start to narrate all of my motions aloud. So I say, there are your drinks. And I sit them down. And I turned to get the pizza, and I remember this television program I saw about thrill killings, about these teenagers who will lure someone out somewhere, and they'll kill them just to know what it feels like to kill somebody. And I think, what if it's that? What if these kids are just going to take all this stuff, and then they're just going to shoot me in the head, and I'm going to die for $35.04 worth of pizza? And even if he's not going to just shoot me in the head, maybe he's nervous, and maybe the safety's not on that gun, and he's going to pull the trigger accidentally. And from this distance, it, you are going to die. It's going to kill you. I go, there's the food. I put the food down on the ground. And I go to reach into my left pocket to pull out my bank to make change for pizzas. And I go to hand it to him, and he's breathing heavy. 
And I think, why is he breathing heavy? Is, is he breathing heavy because it's, it's hot and it's hard to breathe and I'm having a hard time breathing? Or is he breathing heavy because he's nervous? And if he's nervous, the safety may not be on that gun and he may accidentally pull the trigger and he will blow your head off. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe, maybe he's breathing heavy because he's getting a kick out of this. Maybe this is a thrill killing, and he's going to know what it's like to kill someone in just a minute, and he's so excited, and he almost can't contain it, and he knows that he has me in a bad spot. I give him my money. I reach back to give him my wallet, and I start to hand it to him, and I think, the fuck does this kid need with my license? Why does this kid need my ID? And if he takes my ID, I'm just going to have to drive three and a half hours north to go home to North Alabama, and I'm going to have to go to the DMV, and I'm going to have to get it replaced. And in that three-hour drive home, I may get pulled over by a cop, and the cop's going to want to know why I don't have a driver's license, and I'm going to have to explain to him that this kid took my license, and he didn't really need my license. And I say, can I get my license out? And he looks at me, and he says, yeah. So my hand's shaking, and I pull my license out, and I hand him my wallet. And he goes, you got a cell phone? And for the first time, I hear panic and fear in my voice, and it's terrifying because I can't control it. And I say, no, no, man. That's everything I have. They don't allow us to carry cell phones. You can check my pockets. I'd hidden my cell phone in the console of the car. And he goes, go to the back of the car and lay down, and don't get up till I say you can. So for the first time, I have to actually turn my back to this kid. And I think, run. Just run out into the dark. Because here's when he's going to shoot you. He's just telling you to turn around so he doesn't have to look you in the eye when he's killing you. And even if he's not planning on killing you, the safety may be off on that gun. And from this distance, he is most definitely going to blow your head off. But I think, no, you've been calm up until this point, And it's gotten you this far. So just, just go lay down. So I walk to the back of the car and I go to lay down on the hot pavement where it's soaked up the sun all day. And I lay down in such a way where I can see their feet. And I think if either one of them takes even a step towards me, I'm bolting. I'm just going to run out into the dark because I'm not going to die on my belly for $35.04 worth of pizza. And I see their feet shuffling around and I watch their sweaty legs and I don't know if they're gathering up the pizza or they're counting the money or they're going through my wallet. I don't really know what they're doing. And then the kid says something that I will never, ever forget until the day I die. That's what you get for being late, motherfucker. (laughs) And they run. And I watch their feet. And when they get to the split, they take a left. And I actually lay there for probably 10 seconds because I kept expecting to hear, okay, it's okay to get up now. (laughs) Of course, that didn't happen. And so I think as quickly and as low to the ground as you can, you're going to get in your car and you're going to take a right. That way you don't have to see them anymore and you call 911. So that's what I do. I get up and I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. I call 911. And the lady, the dispatcher, tells me, sir, I need you to calm down and I need you to pull over. And I go, no, I'm not going to pull over. And I'm sorry that I'm not calm right now. I'm just freaking out. I just got robbed at gunpoint. And it's dark. And I want to get somewhere where there's light. And I'm going to drive to where there's light. And she goes, sir, I need you to pull over. And I go, I'm not going to pull over. I'm going to go to where there's light. I can see light ahead. And I pull up and I see the place of light. And it's a funeral home. (laughs) So park in the funeral home and a patrol officer comes to pick me up and he's asking me questions and I say can I call my mom he says yeah yeah call your mom so I call my mom back in North Alabama and I tell her what's happened and of course she's a worrywart like me she starts freaking out I tell her don't worry I'm fine this is my last pizza delivery I'm not gonna deliver any more pizzas don't worry about me the next day she got my graduation invitations in the mail So I have this recurring dream about it, and it's late at night, and it's hot, and I have this bad feeling that something terrible is going to happen, and the kid just shoots me in the face, and I see it from outside my body, and it doesn't look cinematic or interesting or cool. It just looks like my head exploding and springing leaks all at the same time, and then I'm in my body again. And I watch their feet 
run away and I see the blood coming out of my head onto the pavement and I think, why am I not dead? Why am I still conscious right now? And I think, oh, you still have blood in your brain. And when the blood's gone from your brain, you'll die. But then patrol officers show up. And I, I realize that this is, this is not going to stop. And they close my eyes, but I can still see everything from the perspective of my dead body. And I watch my parents identify my body. Feel all the cuts as they're harvesting my organs for donation. I feel the embalming fluid going through my veins. And I listen to my own funeral. And I hear my mom tell someone about the graduation invitations. And I keep hearing people say, Why? Why? Why did this have to happen? It's so dumb. It's so dumb. There's no reason for this. And then they close the casket. Darkness. And I think about that this is probably what hell is. Because all I can think about are my mistakes and my sins. I think about my mom, my dad, my younger sister Marley. I think about Charity, who's this big part of my life, and I hadn't even talked to her for two months before this. I thought about other girls that I had feelings for in my formative years. I thought about Allie in middle school and and my friend Laura, who I had a crush on. And I think about how only the people who are arrogant enough to believe in the afterlife are the ones who are punished by it. And I think being an insignificant blip in the expanse of time followed by complete darkness, sleep, nothingness would be better than this. And I wake up and I'm I'm, I'm panting and I'm crying. And, And one time I woke up screaming and I, th- I think about it a lot, what people are saying at the funeral. They're saying, why, why? It's, it's so dumb. This, this didn't have to happen. And I want to sit up in the casket and say, because it does. Just because it does. It's nobody's fault. It's no reason to blame anybody. It's just people die for insignificant reasons all the time. Why, why should I die for $35.04 worth of pizza? Why shouldn't I? I could have, but I'm glad that I didn't. Thank you. That is all for this week, folks. This is Tokyo Police Club behind me now. And if you like the sound of what happens when Risk goes out of town and does a live show, come and see us sometime. On May 10th, we have two shows, an 8 o'clock show and a 10 o'clock show at the Nameless Coffee House in Boston. That's Saturday, May 10th, two shows in Boston. On May 22nd, we're back in New York and Los Angeles for our regular shows that we do every fourth Thursday. And then on June 7th, we are in Washington, D.C. Now, we still need pitches. We still need story pitches for our Washington, D.C. show on the 7th of June. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Send us your idea for a story you'd like to tell. And you might be in that show. The same is true for the 13th of June in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Now, we need pitches from Chapel Hill. And uh, don't forget, if you live in the region, come out to see us on the 13th of June. 
And listen, if you've ever heard the episodes called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, well, this summer, for the first time, we're going to be doing Risk live from Kink Camp. And listen, if you live anywhere in the Northeast, you've got to come. Come see us at camp. That is at darkodyssey.com. The event is in June. It's called Fusion. Fusion takes place June 18th through the 23rd in Maryland. It's a 200-plus acre private facility, cabins, cafeteria. It's a sex and kink and spirit festival. Come in more ways than one. That's at darkodyssey.com. Don't forget, Risk is a member of the Maximum Fun Network of podcasts, and we're listener-supported. We very much rely on the financial assistance of our listeners, so if you love what we do, please help us to keep doing it. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time donation today. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Ha, ha, ha.